Please turn in your scriptures to Luke chapter 23. I'd like to begin reading at verse uh, 50. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to their decision. Indeed, he was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked, For the body of Jesus. Then he took it down. Wrapped it in linen. And laid it in a tomb. That was hewn out of the rock. Where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation. And the Sabbath drew near. And the women who had come with him from Galilee. Followed after and they observed the tomb. And how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. May we never forget these as precepts, for by them He has given us life. Heavenly Father, we ask that Your Word may come to us in the power of Your Holy Spirit, and not with the wisdom of human speech. That our faith might be in in your power and not in any man. We ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts to hear, to receive, and our ears to hear the truth of your word. And, And that you would sanctify, Lord, my sinful lips to this task. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we looked at Jesus' death. Jesus died. This week, Jesus is buried. Both of these events are very significant for our salvation. This passage tells us about a man named Joseph of Arimathea. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body. This is the body that unjustly and wickedly condemned Jesus to death. And it says, Luke says, or, or, or Mark says that he was a prominent member of this council. Meaning, he took an active part in this assembly. He was a, considered to be a leader in this assembly. He wasn't somebody who was quiet in the corner and just listened and voted when he was told to vote, but he was a prominent member of this body. (coughs) He was a rich man, Matthew tells us. He was a rich man from Arimathea. And he was also a disciple of Christ. 
<clears throat> now that might seem like a, an amazing contradiction that somebody would be a disciple of Christ and a member of the Sanhedrin, this body that hated Christ and had been trying to kill him and had finally succeeded, or so they thought. But Luke tells us here that he was a good and just man. And he hadn't consented but to this deed, but he was also waiting for the kingdom of God. He was a disciple of Christ. This is like Anna. Anna, that woman, that widow who was at the temple, she it says that she, Luke says that she looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Or Simeon, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Luke says that this Joseph of Arimathea was waiting for the kingdom of God. That he was a, a disciple. There were... <coughs> Many uh, people, Jews, who were, who were expecting a messianic kingdom that would deliver them from the Roman occupation. They were expecting a messiah, a political messiah, who would come on a, in front of an army and drive the Romans away. These people weren't waiting for the kingdom of God. They, because Jesus said, they asked him when it was coming, and Jesus said, well, it's... It's around you. You're not going to see it. You're not going to be able to look and see it because it's within you. Those, those Jews weren't waiting for the true kingdom. They were waiting for something of their own imagination. But Joseph of Arimathea, I believe, was a dis- true disciple. <clears throat> he was waiting for, the, waiting for this kingdom. And like Anna and Simeon, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel and for the redemption in Jerusalem. And, he had, and so he hadn't consented to this. But John tells us that he was a timid disciple. He was, a, he was a secret disciple. Because he was afraid of the Jews. Remember the Jews, this, this body that he's a member of is casting out anybody that, any, they were casting out of the church even, anyone that believed in Jesus. You remember this Man that was born blind. You know how they, what, how they questioned him, and they even questioned his parents. Here's this man who's forty years of age, practically, or it, it, um, he's a he's a he's a full grown man, and they're asking his parents about him, and and eventually they cast him out. They excommunicated him from from their from the church because he believed in Jesus. And he, he praised the God who had given him eyesight. And he even had the, he even had the courage to witness and testify to Jesus Christ to their own assembly. Of course, that made them even more angry with him. And you remember they're asking him and, and he said, why this, this is an amazing thing. Do you want to know about him too? And they cast him out. So, Joseph of Arimathea has seen all this. And he know he's a wealthy man. He has there's a lot at stake. If he publicly acknowledges Jesus, he could be cast out 
of not only the Sanhedrin, but even the very church. He could become an outcast of society. His wealth could be taken from him. Whatever his business was, people might not come to it anymore. And if you if you don't if nobody comes to your business, you don't have any income. He would see he would could very quickly cease to be wealthy. We don't know all the ins and outs, but just knowing the fact that he's wealthy and the fact that the Sanhedrin is kicking people out of the church who believe in Jesus Christ, he had reason to be afraid. And he was not his, he he was a timid disciple. His faith was not strong enough that he was able, like the man born blind, to publicly testify to this Sanhedrin who Christ was. But But Luke says, the scripture says that he was a disciple. He was a secret one. He was a timid one. He was afraid. He had a lot to lose. And he wasn't quite willing to lose that yet. You know, he had he he had one foot in both worlds, as it were. He wanted he wanted to keep his money. It's not money it's not wrong to have. And so he's a secret disciple. He didn't publicly defend Jesus at his trial. He was silent. There's no record of anybody testifying in the Sanhedrin against the the sentence of con- to condemn. There's nobody speaking up for him. In fact, the scriptures say everybody deserted him. Even his disciples deserted him and didn't testify. And so he's was silent. Maybe he wasn't there. It's possible he wasn't at the trial. And it's possible. uh, But I suspect that being a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. That he probably was there. His his, uh, devotion to Christ is is a secret at this point. The, the, The rest of the Sanhedrin doesn't know about it. So he, being that he was a prominent member, I suspect that he was at Jesus' trial. And that he did not raise a voice in Jesus' defense, which was, which was wrong. Jesus was innocent. Pilate knew he was innocent. The centurion that crucified Jesus knew he was innocent. Joseph of Arimathea knew he was innocent as well, but he's silent. He isn't able to speak up. But God brought in His grace a, a trial. And through that trial, this timid disciple became bold. And when Jesus had died, had suffered and died, a death that had a significant impact even on this hardened Roman centurion that crucified him who declared surely this was a man of God. Righteous. God's Holy Spirit so moved in him and gave him courage and boldness to go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. That was a courageous thing to do. Because he now publicly 
testify, publicly exposed the fact that he was a disciple of Christ and that he had a desire to care for the body. You know, for, for a, a Roman, non-Roman citizen who was crucified, there was no care given to their body. They could, have been, they could be left on the cross for the birds to eat their flesh. It's not only a horrific and humiliating death, but after death, there's no care given to these people. They're renegades. They're outcasts. They, if, if they wanted to, they just left them on the cross as a sign to people, to everybody, that this is what happens to you if you cross the Roman government. And so Joseph, in asking for this body, is, is doing a brave thing, a courageous thing. Pilate is surprised that he's dead so quickly. Normally, crucifixion took three days, two, three, four days to die. Some people took longer. And so Pilate's surprised he's dead. And he confirms that this Jesus is in fact dead. He didn't want somebody taking Jesus off the cross before he di- had died and somehow revived. But, and, but when he learns that Jesus is indeed dead, then it's confirmed by the centurion, then he granted permission to Joseph to take the body. And so Joseph publicly went to the cross and took the body. Joseph went and took it down. This was, this was a very public thing he did. This crucifixion had been public. There was crowds around him, mocking him. There was the Roman army there. There were all the, the Sanhedrin who finally had achieved their, their desire. And so they were all, they would have all been there as well. This was, and he, in this very public way, went up to that cross. And Luke says, he took it down. Here's a rich man who wouldn't have ordinarily probably stooped to do a lot of manual labor. He had, ser- if he was a rich man, he had servants to do all of that. Even people that weren't rich would have had servants to do, their, to do work. But he was a rich man. He lived in, in finery. The, the, the Jewish rulers were very wealthy people in general especially, particularly the Sadducees. And yet here he went and took down this bloody body because you remember, even though Jesus' bones weren't broken, a a spear pierced his side and water and blood came out. That's what happens when you have trauma to to the body. All the fluid comes out of the blood and into the tissue and you have this swelling. And so this... This Jesus' side was pierced and blood and fluid came out. Jesus' body was a mess. Remember, he'd been beaten, crown of thorns upon his head. He's been crucified. Nails had been piercing his hands and his feet. Joseph publicly went and took down this messy, dirty body because the Holy Spirit had given him courage to be known publicly as a disciple of Christ. And he did so now without fear of what his public testimony would cost him. 
Joseph, I think, might would seem to be the first believer among the ruling class of the Jews. There were many priests, we read in Acts, that will we'll come to that, Lord willing, who, who were converted. But it would seem that Joseph was the first. Nicodemus came and uh, he did come to Jesus. He was also um, seeking, a seeker. Uh, but he, he only tags along with Joseph. He's mentioned, but he's, he's not the one who took the lead in this. Seems that Joseph took the lead. Nicodemus followed along. All of the Jews received the promises, but their minds weren't set on, on things above. They were set on here on the earth. But God in His grace brought salvation. And He taught Joseph of Arimathea to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. To live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope in the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember, Joseph of Arimathea was one who was seeking, looking for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And that's how we ought to live as those who are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, living soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And that's what Joseph of Arimathea began to do the day that Jesus died. And he went up and publicly took down his body wrapped it in a linen garment and laid it in his own tomb that was hewn out of rock in which no one else had ever been laid. You know, there, there are many other examples in the scriptures of believers who initially are very timid, who by the grace of God fi- gather courage and publicly are able to publicly testify to the truth of God's word and to Jesus Christ. Another example in the Old Testament is Gideon. He was a fearful believer. He's threshing wheat in the wine press to hide himself from the Midianites. Now that may not necessarily be a, a, a fear. It, it might just be wisdom in, in um, concealing his crops from the from the, um, the oppressor. But the angel of the Lord appeared to him and called him a mighty man of valor. And Gideon said, well, if that's the case, then why has all this happened to us? You know, he, he was doubting that God's word was true. He thought God had forsaken them. He said, didn't God bring us up from Egypt? And now, why are we delivered into the hands of the Midianites? And the Lord said to him, go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. But, but Gideon didn't believe. He said, I, I can't do that. I'm least of all in my father's house. I'm least in Manasseh's house. I'm Manasseh's least in Israel. His clan is weak in the, in the tribe of Manasseh. And so God, you know, you, um, 
continues to uh, dialogue with Gideon. And Gideon went and prepared that sacrifice, remember, and offered it to the Lord there, the angel of the Lord. And then he realized it was the angel of the Lord. And, and then he was afraid. He said, I've seen the f- angel of God face to face and he's, he's afraid he's going to die. But God said, you won't die. Go take your father's bowl and sacrifice it. Tear down the altar of Baal and sacrifice it. And Gideon did that, but he did it at night, the Bible says, because he was afraid. He feared the people in the city. So he did it by night. And you know the rest of that famous story, how he went on. Um, God protected him. His father actually stood up and, and defended him. To the, before the people in the city who were demanding to know who tore down their altar of Baal. And you know the rest of the story, how Gideon went on with 300 men to deliver Israel from the Amalekites and how he is listed in Hebrews 11 as a man of faith. But it didn't start out that way. It's like, like Joseph of Arimathea. And maybe like some of us, you know, we're, we're too afraid to pray publicly with our workers, our fellow workers, when we sit down to lunch, maybe. I know that's been true of me. But maybe we, when we sit down to eat, we can say, can I offer thanks for this food? Most people will say yes, and the ones that don't won't say anything. And you can pray. And publicly proclaim that you are a disciple of Christ. And that you want to thank the Lord for the food that is before you. So Joseph obtained the body of Jesus from Pilate. And he buried him. This He buried him in his own tomb and this uh, fulfilled one of the Old Testament prophecies that he that with the Isaiah that they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. There were actually many, many prophecies that were, were fulfilled this in this day of crucifixion. It would be a whole sermon to to look in detail at at all of them, but uh, we've we've looked at some of them. The the Messiah uh, was betrayed by Judas. That was foretold by David, a close friend. That Christ would be forsaken by his disciples was prophesied by Zechariah. To strike the sheep and the strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. The the price of his betrayal was also foretold by Zechariah. It's, it's the 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11. Zechariah foretold what would be done with the, with the betrayal money. They would throw it to the potter. Isaiah prophesied that Christ would be sacrificed as the Passover lamb of God. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. That there would be scourgings and mockings would follow. Isaiah and David both prophesied that Jesus' body would be mutilated. Many, Psalm Isaiah 52, many were astonished at him for his body was disfigured, even his form beyond the sons of men. David prophesied that 
shame and dishonor that Christ would suffer being condemned as a criminal. The reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. My enemies are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart. I am full of heaviness. I looked for sympathy, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. David foretold that the false, wi- false witnesses that would testify against Christ, cruel witnesses rose up. They asked me things I knew nothing about in Psalm 35. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would not defend himself. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth as a lamb brought to the slaughter. Isaiah foretold Jesus' crucifixion as an offering, as a sin offering for the world. Isaiah prophesied that he was numbered among lawbreakers. He was counted among the transgressors in Isaiah 53. And Luke tells us that he was, and the other writers, that he was crucified between two malefactors. David prophesied that his hands and feet would be pierced. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. The parting of his garments was also prophesied by David. In another psalm, David prophesied that they would give him vinegar to drink in Psalm 69. David prophesied that many would be watching Jesus during the crucifixion. They look and they gloat over me in Psalm 22. Among those watching would be Jesus' family and friends. Psalm 38 says, My loved ones and my friends stand apart from my plague and my neighbors stand afar off. That's what Luke tells us in 49. Luke, verse 49. Some of his observers would shake their heads at him. Psalm 109. They looked upon me, they shook their heads. Even the words of his reproachers were prophesied by David. He trusted in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him since he delights in him. Those were the words that were spoken at Jesus' crucifixion. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would make intercession for sinners and this intercession began even before his crucifixion when he prayed, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Isaiah 53 says he bore the sins of many and made intercession for transgressors. David prophesied the thoughts of Jesus The agony of Jesus at the height of his suffering. Even the very words that he spoke. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Zechariah prophesied additionally that his body would be pierced by a spear in Zechariah 12.10. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. David prophesied that, as we saw last week, that Jesus would commit his spirit to God. David also prophesied his last words. It is finished. Scriptures prophesied that not one bone of Jesus would be broken. Psalm 34, he keeps all his bones, not one is broken. When the the soldiers came to break the legs of the people so that they would, the, the crucified, so they would die and could be taken down from the cross that day and wouldn't be on the cross overnight because it was not something the Jews would allow. They didn't break his legs because he was already dead. And lastly, his burial in a tomb of a rich man was foretold by Isaiah as well. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. 
and with his generation who do not consider that he was cut off out of, out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Although he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Why did Jesus have to be buried? When he suffered on the cross, he suffered the wrath of God for all the sins of all his people. And he said, it is finished. It is finished. Well, there are several reasons. And, and really to understand uh, these reasons and the second question which I would look to like, like to look at in closing this morning, that is what, where did his soul go at his death? We need to understand the, the person of Jesus Christ. And so just a quick review. We know that Jesus is God and man in two distinct natures. In one person. He has to be God. Fully God. To be able to bear the wrath of God. In a finite time. Without sinking into oblivion. No mere man. Could bear the wrath of God. Jesus bore the wrath of God. For all people. In, his t- in, in a finite time. He had to be man. To bear, to be our sacrifice, to be a sacrifice in our place. If he wasn't, if he didn't have a nature like ours, if he didn't have a human flesh like ours, he couldn't be our sacrifice. He couldn't be our Passover lamb. That's why, that's why the blood of the lamb sacrificed in the Old Testament could not actually atone for sin because it had to be a person, a righteous person in whom there is no blemish. And so Jesus had to be man as well. He had to be God and man together in one person to do both at the same time. He died as respects his human nature. And his human body was put in the grave. His flesh. And his soul went to Sheol. But God didn't die. In that, in that God, Jesus, as respects his divine nature, didn't die. And that's why he is able to, he said, I lay, he voluntarily gave his life. I lay, no man takes my life. I lay it down and I take it up. Right? If Jesus, in his divine nature, didn't die. He died with respect to his human nature. Although we do say, just like with the sacraments, we do talk about those two natures and we and we say of one nature what is true of the other nature. And so there are some people who would say God died, but only in the sense that they are attributing to his divine nature what is true of his human nature. But so Christ is also a prophet, priest, and king. He is, he is a um, prophet in testifying to the truth of God's word, testifying to his deity, as the son of God and to his kingship. And he is a, uh, uh, he executes the office of a, carries out the office of a king in subduing us to himself. 
and he executes or does the office of a priest and is offering up of himself a sacrifice. And he, and in doing this, he has, he is humiliated. He he, he underwent a state of humiliation and being born, just just to take on human flesh is is a is a humiliation to be born be born of a woman he is god he was born of a woman that that was a humiliation he lived under the law and he he was um, unjustly condemned tried and crucified and died and buried it's a part of his humiliation because then god exalts him he raises him from the dead he raises him up into heavens. He's seated at, seated at the right hand of the Father and he comes again to judge the world at the last day. And so Jesus has to be buried as a proof of his death. It shows that he truly died and, and he's buried. He has to be um, buried because he endured all as our as our priest he has suffered and endured and been tested in every way as we are and we must die and lay down not not to pay for our sins but in laying down our this body of sin and 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 we continue under the power of death and so Jesus needed to do that in order to be our high priest and be able to sympathize with us and be tested in all points as we are. He continued under the power of death for a time. That means that he continued in this state where his spirit and his body were separated. And we looked at that in more detail last week. But Jesus continued under this for a time. In fact, the, another prophecy was that he would be three, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the well, Jesus would be three days and three nights in, in the grave under the power of death. He's also buried because that is how respect, proper respect is shown to a human body. Until the late twentieth um, century, Christians did not burn people. Bodies were always buried. It's the people who desecrate uh, the body that burned the body. But believers have always buried the body. In the scriptures, Christ's enemies were burned, but his friends were always buried. God buried Moses and Aaron. It was the wicked that were burned. It was a sign of um, it was a sign that they were haters of God. Now I didn't uh, I I didn't think cremation for many years until very recently. I di- I didn't think there was an issue with cremation. We we're not concerned about creation and the resurrection that's not the issue right when we die our b- and we're put in the ground the worms eat our body and some fisherman digs up the worms and that ate our body and catches a fish with them 
and that takes that fish home and cooks it and eats it. Where is that person? It's, that person is completely gone in the sense of our being able to track the physical part of that person. God is able to raise that person up again, all of us. That's not the issue. The issue is uh, what the Word of God says. And God judged um, a king of Moab because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. When I read that recently, a few years ago, it, it struck me exactly what that was. That is exactly what cremation does. It burns our bones to lime. And here I was reading in the Word of God that God brought a judgment on a king for doing that very thing. And then all, and then to me, all of the history of the Christian church and the testimony of the church fathers against cremation became very real and significant. When we die, our bodies should be buried. That is, that is what a decent that is a decent Christian burial. We shouldn't burn our bones to lime. And and in the history of the church, church has not done that. Burn bones to lime. In fact, it wasn't even permitted to mark cut or mark a living body in memory of the dead. Certainly, to burn the body itself would be wrong. So, if we want to die like Christ, and and then we should want to be buried as well, like Christ was. Now, where did his spirit go? Once he's buried, he's under the power of death for a time. Where, where did his spirit go? This is not a, not an easy question. It's one I've wrestled with for a while. But I believe that the scriptures tell us and our creeds as well confirm to us that Jesus' spirit went to Hades or to Sheol. Psalm 16 says, You will not not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to seek corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what the Bible says. God would not leave his soul in Sheol. And in Acts 2, Peter quotes this at the sermon on Pentecost. For David says concerning him, concerning Christ, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades. That's the Greek translation, the Greek word for Sheol, the Hebrew word Sheol which um, in most Bibles is just transliterated from into English as Hades. You will not leave, Peter said, quoting, quoting um, Psalm 16, you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to seek corruption. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He was talking about Christ, as he said. Psalm 16 was talking about Christ. And 
He did not leave his soul in Hades. So how do we understand then Jesus saying to the thief, you will be with me in paradise today? Well, I, I think this is where uh, Phil Kaiser has uh, helped out a lot with his understanding of the Old Testament saints being uh, raised out of Hades at, the, uh, at Christ's coming. And, and this, this being the first, revelation, uh, first resurrection that's spoken of in Revelation. I think that's very significant and helpful here because we know that in the Old Testament, believers went to Sheol. Jacob talks about going down to Sheol. David talks about going to Sheol. And he would see, uh, he would see his son. He would be with his son down there in Sheol. So there is a then two divisions in Sheol, upper and a lower. And the believers <coughs> were in the upper Sheol and not the lower. And then in the resurrect in in Revelation, <coughs> in the first resurrection, all of the believers are removed from Sheol and taken into heaven. And Revelation says they live and reign with Christ in the millennium, which is now. And so all those Old Testament believers would have been raised out of Sheol, but that this would indicate then that Christ's soul went to Sheol, the place where believers' souls went at their death and where this thief would have gone as well. Now, if you don't accept that, you can. we also can understand that Jesus, as his divine nature, didn't die and was everywhere present and would have been in heaven. And if this thief went to heaven, then he could have also been there in that sense. But I believe that the souls of Old Testament believers went to Sheol, upper Sheol. And that's where Jesus was with the thief in paradise. And, and Revelation tells us that in the final judgment, Sheol, Hades, is cast into the lake of fire. And, and the, the hope of the gospel is that God delivered the saints out of Sheol. That was, those were the Christ was the first fruits, and remember there was uh, uh, five hundred or people that were resurrected at Christ's resurrection. And um, <clears throat> and so that this was the first fruits, the first resurrection. But Christ's soul was not left in Hades. His body did not see corruption. He was raised from the dead, that the grave could not hold him because he was righteous. And because the grave could not hold him, we too are able to be set free from the grave. We too, most of us, unless Christ returns before we die, will live, our bodies will be under the power of death. Our soul will be separated from our body. But of course now after this first resurrection and the emptying of Sheol, we, we go to heaven. Our, our souls go to heaven at our death. But even when we are in this time under the power of death, where our spirit is separated from our body, we will not continue. And our body lies in the grave. We don't continue in that estate because Christ has broken those bonds.
Now, so we can, as we come to the Lord's table, we uh, give thanks for his death and for his burial as well. It was a part of his atoning sacrifice in our place. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, there is so much that we do not understand. And we look forward to that day that we will understand. We will be made perfectly blessed with spiritual bodies, perfectly blessed to, to the full enjoying of you to all eternity. For Lord, now we can do so but imperfectly our spirit is willing but our flesh is weak we thank you for this reminder this sign that you have given to us in the Lord's table and we ask for your grace to come to us to strengthen us Lord where we have been timid and fearful and quiet as Joseph of Arimathea was may you Give to us boldness and courage to publicly testify and own you as our Savior as, and as our Lord and as the King. Lord, may your praise and your glory always be upon our lips. Lord, as we come to this table, we ask... we. We thank you for these elements and ask that you would set them apart as sealing signs of your, uh, of your covenant with us, of your sacrifice in our place. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.